0: morning everyone, it's good to see you and to be with you. My name is Nelson, one of the pastors here at Artisan Church, and uh, it's my privilege again my delight to uh, open up the scriptures with us, for us this morning. We're continuing in the book of Acts, and so I want to invite you, if you have a chair Bible nearby, or an app, or maybe you've even brought a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 9, If you're using Chair Bibles, the page number will be up here on the screen. And we're going to be covering most of that chapter up to verse 31 this morning. If you were here last week, we were in the last part of Acts chapter 8. um, And it was what I referred to as a road story. And then we went to Luke 24's road story. And today we're looking at text that is probably one of the most renowned in all of Scripture. And it just so happens it also took place on a road, the road to Damascus, where the central character is a powerful Jewish man named Saul, who's traveling around Palestine, hunting down as many followers of Jesus as he can. Let's read the opening nine verses together. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Jamasca- Damascus, Jamascus, nope, that's new. As he neared Damascus on his journey. A lot of J's and stuff. Okay. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He replied. Get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So the thing we have to understand about Saul as we approach this text is that he was a Jew and a devout one, which means he would have spent considerable time giving himself to religious practices, to uh, techniques of prayer and meditation that were central to Judaism at the time. So, for example, Saul would have chanted the Psalms regularly. He also would have repeated the Shema prayer over and over again. You know this from Judaism. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. So quick sidebar, similar practices, of course, exist in the Christian faith as well. For example, there's a variation on the Shema found in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, where we read, Paul writes, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Both these repeated prayers recognize the power of summoning the divine name and this is a theme that luke wants to draw our attention to look for it in our texts but there were other practices as well some christ followers today have discovered uh, the ignatian method sometimes referred to as imaginative prayer where you take a story from scripture from the gospels say and you just try to get inside it you imagine being present in the scene the drama unfolding you're living in it you're seeing what happens And trying to listen for what God or Jesus might be saying to you as a character in the story. So coming back to thinking about Saul in particular, there was one type of meditation similar to Ignatian prayer that became famous among pious Jews. And it involved continuous reflection on the great vision of the prophet Ezekiel. It's in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel sees something like a great chariot with wheels and angels and flashing lights. So first he describes the four-faced angels who appear to be carrying the chariot. They move this way and that. They're sparkling and glowing. And then he describes the wheels themselves, whirling and flashing, and their rims are full of eyes. At last, he describes the larger scene, a dome above, a rainbow all around, and a throne like a great jewel. Now. As you might imagine, artists uh, have tried to render this visually. And if you want to see some next-level Pinterest fodder, Google Ezekiel's vision sometime. I spent a few minutes there and decided, no, it's not worth putting those up. But a precise vision, you're like, (laughs) sorry for the letdown, if anyone's feeling (laughs) let down by that. A precise visual depiction, however, was not what mattered most to those meditating on this throne chariot. The point for Jews in Jesus' day was to see if by sincere prayer and fasting, holiness, devotion, contemplation, one might arrive at a place where even in this life, you could experience the high point of the vision, which is described in the closing verses of Ezekiel 1. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire and that from there he from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day so was the radiance around him this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord when I saw it I fell face down and I heard the voice Of one speaking. Do you hear how cautious Ezekiel is? He doesn't say that he saw God himself, only that he saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, Yahweh, Israel's God. But even so, it makes sense that people who studied Scripture intently, who longed to experience the vision of the God they loved and trusted, would come to use Ezekiel 1 in prayer. The hope was maybe they'd be permitted to catch a glimpse of that same glory, to see God face to face on his throne, even if the sight would cause them to fall on their faces. Why am I sharing this? What I'm about to suggest is admittedly a guess, but it's one that a number of serious scholars have put forward, including N.T. Wright, But whether it's totally accurate or not, it goes a long way toward helping us get inside the world of thought and experience that we need to understand if we're going to grasp the full impact of this story. So what do we know about Saul again? Deeply devout Jew. In his life, prayer and meditation would have been a daily occurrence, the study of scripture, a lifelong passion. Now beyond that, He came from the branch within Judaism, the Pharisees, where meditation, like I've just described, was taught, at least in some circles. So given all this, the odds are actually pretty good that Saul knew and sometimes tried to practice the throne chariot meditation. So let's imagine that that's exactly what Saul of Tarsus was doing on the long, slow road from Jerusalem to Damascus. We're talking about a distance of one hundred and fifty miles, which would have taken about a week, and so a journey like that might have been the perfect time for this kind of meditation you 're on horseback, so the steady plod of the horse, the quiet countryside surrounding I think this sort of backdrop helps us appreciate in a new way what happened to him yeah it's all good um, i think this I think that the glory that he He was making the trip for the glory of God. So the glory that he believed was being tarnished by these whacked-out followers of Jesus. Now, if that's the gravity of your mission, you got to keep that glory front and center. You need to make sure your zeal is turned to 11 and properly aimed. So let's imagine Saul on the road doing the Ezekiel meditation, trying to envision the throne chariot. So he had gazed with the eyes of his heart on the angels. He'd stared at the wheels... As they're flashing to and fro, he'd longed to be able to raise his eyes from the angels and the wheels to the chariot itself, and then to the figure who sat on the chariot, flaming with fire, surrounded by light. Imagine his excitement. He's in this deepest place of meditative space, and he saw with the eyes of his heart so real that he could have sworn he was seeing it with his physical eyes And then so real that he realized he was seeing it with his physical eyes. The form, the fire, the blazing light, and the face. And the face was Jesus of Nazareth. In the blink of an eye, Saul's world is turned on its head. Terror, shame, awe, horror, glory, terror again, consumed his whole being. As one scholar put it, this was an encounter that simultaneously confirmed and overturned everything Saul had been taught. The law and the prophets had come true, and the law and the prophets had been torn to pieces and put back together in a totally new way. It was a new world, and it was the old world made explicit it showed him that the god he had loved from childhood the god for whose glory he had been so righteously indignant the god in whose name and for whose honor he was busy rounding up those who were declaring that jesus of nazareth was israel's messiah that he was risen from the dead that he was the lord of this world it showed him that the god he had been right to serve right to seek in prayer the god of abraham and isaac and jacob had done what he always said He would, but he'd done it in a shocking, scandalous, and horrifying way. The God who had always promised to come and rescue his people had done so in person. So Saul sinks to the ground, blinded by the light, with the words ringing in his head, I am Jesus, and you are persecuting me. Me? Did he hear that right? Somehow. These women and men Saul had been dragging off to prison were Jesus' own people, his family. One thing that's giving me more and more pause these days in my own life of faith is what we could call the scandalous solidarity of Jesus. We see it over and over again in the pages of the Gospels, and here we're seeing it again. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the radical, unwavering, scandalous willingness of Jesus to associate with those serve him as Lord we sang it earlier not too proud to wear our skin to feel this brokenness we're in not too proud to dwell with us to live in us to die for us we see it in the story of the sheep and the goats in Matthew's gospel whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me the flip side of that story, of course, is Jesus' willingness to dissociate from those who call him Lord, but whose lives don't bear the marks of discipleship. In Saul's case, though, we're talking about true Jesus apprentices. He wasn't literally persecuting Jesus, but rather his disciples. And yet, as far as Jesus himself was concerned, Saul was persecuting him. A favorite verse of mine from the Psalms in the Message translation is, Psalm 84, verse 5, which reads, And how blessed all those in whom you live, whose lives become roads you travel. Those of you who consider yourselves Christ followers, question for us to consider, what's it like to think of your life as an extension of Jesus' very self, as a road Jesus travels on? those of us who wouldn't necessarily identify in that way, do you nonetheless ever have a sense that something or someone other is pursuing you? Wherever we find ourselves in relationship to God, I wonder if our experience ever resembles that of another relatively well-known conversion story. I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis. In his book that describes his process of coming to know God surprised by joy, Lewis writes the following... I became aware that I was holding something at bay, or shutting something out, or, if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets, or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty, no threat, or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I I say I chose... Yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You, you could argue that I was not a free agent, but I'm more inclined to think that this came nearer to be a being a perfectly free act than most I have ever done. Does this resonate for anyone? Any parts of it? Later in his life, Saul, who then went by Paul, couldn't stop testifying to the grace and the love, the compassion of Jesus, the freedom that he enjoyed because of these things. It's interesting to consider. Let's continue in the story, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered, The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the, to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, let's just pause there. And can we just give props to Ananias? <laughs> I mean, I, I came across a tweet this last week about this little episode. just want to have a look at it. I'll see if this works. I don't know if this is going to work. Is it advancing on its own? Yeah. Go lay hands on Saul, but Lord, I said what I said. <laughs> given everything that's going on, given Saul's reputation, what he was doing, we get Ananias' in initial reluctance, right? I absolutely would respond similarly. I'd need some convincing, which Luke tells us the Lord was happy to offer. He does say go. There's an exclamation mark attached, but we don't know if that's in the original or not. We don't know what the tone was. But in any case, let's continue reading props to Ananias. So, brother Saul, he says, "The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit." Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up. He's baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, he kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now, some of us might be wondering, why was it necessary for Saul to be struck blind for three days? So, I don't know. If you've ever wished your story of coming to faith had a little more drama in it, maybe you're thinking twice about that at this point. Why temporary blindness? Doesn't that seem a bit harsh? I've been thinking about this, reflecting on it, and on one level, I'd humbly suggest not really, not compared to breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, not when you consider what Saul was doing to the church, not when you think what he actually deserved. God could have erased Saul, but he didn't. God had other plans for this one. In Saul's case, temporary blindness was actually a mercy. And then came the double mercy of Ananias, who placed his hands on him and said, Brother, Saul, brother. Ananias already saw him as part of the family, bound by this new kind of kinship, the same kind that was in effect on the road when Jesus told Saul he was persecuting, not just his followers, but him. So Saul could see that. He could see anything. Hands were laid on him. Scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. One way that I'm coming to think of, of conversion, which is an ongoing process, is as the recovery of sight. The recovery of sight. But also revelation. An unveiling of what's always been true but we've refused to see it or maybe more accurately, haven't been able to see it. In Saul's case, it seems as though his temporary physical blindness was like God holding up a mirror to what his spiritual reality had been all along, like meditating on Ezekiel's throne chariot. He's hoping to catch a glimpse of the God with whom he'd been familiar since childhood, but he sees the face of Jesus instead. I'll uh, tell you a story about discovering that I needed these. One evening, uh, about a year ago, Terry and I were sitting around the table with our brother and sister-in-law. We were playing Monopoly Deal. If you don't know about Monopoly Deal, um, two things, ask Colin Borst. Um, second thing, it just, it, it's just like the original game. It's a blood sport, but it's played with cards instead of uh, a board and paper money and playing pieces. So we're having fun, being a little bit ruthless to each other. And I'm holding the cards out just a little bit further than usual. And the first person to recognize that this was happening was my sister-in-law, Sharon. So it's Nelson, what's, what's going on there? Um, I'm like, what? Well, it looks, looks like you're needing a little help seeing the cards. So Terry goes and gets a Ziploc bag full of dollar store reading glasses that she uses as accessories for the aforementioned hand puppets. And so she pulls out this bag. She hands me a pair and says, try these. So I put them on. And I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. It was like someone laid hands on me. I felt like singing a gospel song. who's blind? But now. So when's the last time you had your eyes checked, Sharon asks. Well, my class 4 license, I have to go do a driver's medical every five years. So I don't know, maybe a year or two ago. So friends, I was 47. Years old when I realized that a driver's medical isn't the same thing as seeing an eye doctor. (laughs) I booked an appointment the next day, and eventually uh, I got these. And so now, the list of things that I can't see without my glasses is getting increasingly longer. I absolutely can't read a book without them. I can't look at my phone without them. Um, This is a bit weird. I can't really eat without them. I mean, I can, but I don't want to. Because you know what it's like to look down at a blurry plate of food? Do you, those of you who have glasses, do you know what I'm talking about? Anyone? Can I get an amen? I'm the only one. Thanks, Jalen. So appreciate you. Um, I, I'm coming to realize that participation in our ongoing conversion is like learning to see again. It's not always as dramatic as the Damascus Road or even Monopoly deal, but the image is the same For all of us, we're always in need of the corrective lens of the Spirit. That said, learning to see again takes different forms depending on the stage of our journey. I want to suggest sometimes our inability to see is like a dark night of the soul, which contrary to what we might think isn't necessarily about suffering or a deeply painful experience It has more to do with hiddenness it's this great quote from uh, psychiatrist Gerald May who says The dark night is a profoundly good thing. It is an ongoing spiritual process in which we are liberated from attachments and compulsions and empowered to live and love more freely. Sometimes this letting go of old ways is painful, occasionally even devastating, but this is not why the night is called dark. The darkness of the night implies nothing sinister, only that the liberation takes place in hidden ways, beneath our knowledge and understanding. It happens mysteriously, in secret, and beyond our control. For that reason, it can be disturbing or even scary, but in the end, it always works to our benefit. It strikes me that Saul was blind for three days folks images of Jonah in the belly of the whale Jesus in the tomb a kind of holy saturday this this longest day of the year in betweenness what was going on for Saul during that time more particularly what was the spirit of god up to i think the spirit was getting him ready for resurrection whatever that meant for newness happened beneath the level of knowledge and understanding For whatever was to come, Saul had met the living Christ face to face, and things were different now. What about for you and me? In our dark night experiences, when we can't see or know or understand what is going on in our souls, how might God be preparing us for the sweet dawn of awakening, for restored vision? That's one way it could look, like a dark night. Learning to see again, other times learning to see again or participating in our ongoing conversion is like seeing something awe-inspiring for the first time. A friend of mine told this story. We're in our early 20s, just finished another year of school, so it didn't get any better than this. The seven of us were living in a van for a month, touring across most of the states west of the Mississippi. First night we pulled into the campsite well after dark. We had crossed the border earlier that day, driving through Washington and making the descent down the Oregon coast. We set up our tents with the van's headlights pointed at our site, and shivering, we soon crawled into our sleeping bags. We spoke of the coming days and the experiences we hoped for. I've always wanted to see the redwoods in California. I hear they're incredible, Johnny said. Yeah, apparently there's a tree. It's so big you can drive a car through it. We should take the blue ox through. should fit. Brent added with a chuckle. Definitely, Pete chimed. And you know what else we need to do? See how many states I can go through without changing my boxers. Jenna yelled from the other tent, Pete, you are not, you're sick. Very sick man. We all laughed knowing Pete wasn't joking. After a few moments of stillness, Johnny whispered with a hushed reverence, listen to that ocean. It was no more than 100 yards from our campsite and thundering in the dark, so loud, so close. It sounded as if it were slowly encroaching on our little campsite, more than able to swallow us whole. Eventually, we were all listening and left to our own thoughts. We'd been talking about a trip like this for some time. We'd live in a van each day, making our way without a fixed itinerary, just a desire to see the sights and live a few stories to tell. I had my own reasons for coming on the trip. I was stuck, had been for a while, and desperately needed a sense of movement. I joined at the last minute, hoping that the passing of miles and the covering of terrain would create a similar internal trajectory. We awoke to daylight and the sleepless ocean still surging. The wind whipped the walls of our tent, calling us to attention. After finishing breakfast, we packed up and decided to see the ocean before a day of travel we crossed the campground to climb the hill that stood between us and the beach. Giddy with anticipation, most of us prairie kids had never been to the coast. Through the suspended gray mist, we were met with the ocean's bellow rising up to the other side of the hill, spilling over the edge with a trembling crescendo. As we rounded the top of the ridge, the volume now at a full roar, the ocean finally came into view. Sound gave way to sight. We were stunned silent, stopping in unison as if on command. The wind acting as an usher held us still. We were the only ones on the beach, yet somehow it felt like we were trespassing. The beach stretched endlessly to the right and left, full of rolling sandhills with tufts of tall grass bent over from wind and awe. The rocks jutted out of the water with carved beauty and raw emotion. Have you seen this before? The ocean swirled with green and blue and gray and white holding opposites together, a frothing paradox, teeming with life, yet easily able to administer death. Full of fragility and violence, possessing peace and fury. All the while the faithful waves repeatedly crashed to the shore, the ocean's mass being tossed up and then down, crashing. It was overwhelming, an inundation of sight, sound, smell, and touch. Times like this, there is just too much meaning in the world, and you can feel yourself bending under the weight of it all. We witnessed all of this, and no one said a word for a long time. No one was prepared for this. How could you be? Even though you've never seen it most of your life, you think you know what an ocean is. You've got your pictures in National Geographic and your movies like White Squall and The Perfect Storm. I could have told you a few descriptors, a few details, perhaps, but I didn't know what an ocean was like. There are certain things in the world you can't know staying at home with your computer. To stand before this ocean was to be addressed. The scripture talks about deep calling out to deep. I had no answer. I realized standing there that hearsay is one thing and seeing is another. Jesus is always extending the invitation to come and see. Come and see. And that means, first and foremost, we need to see him, to be with him. It's about proximity. There's some things you can't see from the parking lot or inside the tent or sitting at a desk. What is Jesus inviting you to take a closer look at? Other times, learning to see again is like assuming something's true, living your life as though it is, but then something shifts and you start to see things differently and you start to get changed. Like our perception of what God is like lately my ongoing conversion feels like my understanding of who jesus is is being reshaped and refined reading people like rachel held evans and brad Jerzak and brian zond reading scripture from the perspective of marginalized people trying to understand it from the point of view of those on the outside looking in i'm learning to see jesus differently sometimes it's like Damascus Road. It's like a portrait I've had in my imagination as just being vandalized. Other times it's like art restoration. Process is slow and delicate and it requires careful attention and nuance. By grace, by which I mean in part the grace of allowing myself to be exposed to a growing number of voices particularly those on the margins, Jesus is becoming less abstract to me. He's becoming more real, more concrete, more tangibly relevant to conversations going on in the public sphere, more embodied, more risky to actually follow, less monochromatic. One voice I'm coming to appreciate, Luke Norsworthy said this, the Christian witness I'm hoping for in 2020 is a prophetic voice that critiques the divisive nature of the political powers and models a hospitality that's born out of a recognition of the divine image in all people. That's good. As you participate in your own ongoing process of conversion, how are you coming to see Jesus differently? And as we come back so the last section of our text, what difference is it making? So Saul's story, Ananias places his hands on him. He prays for him, and his sight is restored. He receives a revelation of Jesus. What were the results of his transformed vision? Let's read the last few verses together, and then we'll kind of come back to this question in just a moment. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples... But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So, quick recap here. Saul's life in encountering Jesus had been turned completely upside down. And this sets in motion a chain of events of plots and persecutions from which Saul would never again be completely free. First, he flees Damascus, being covertly lowered in a basket through a hole in the city wall. Now he's in Jerusalem, and he immediately faces heavy suspicion from Christians there who are doubting the legitimacy of his conversion. So in the wake of all that, Just as we did for Ananias, can we say thank goodness for Barnabas? Bless that guy. His name means son of encouragement, and he lives up to it here. Telling Saul's story, explaining what happened. He advocates for Saul. They accept him. So back to the question I was just asking. What was the fruit of Saul's life post-conversion? What happened when he learned to see again? Well, there's a lot, of course, we could point to. That stretches beyond this text itself, such as the fact that he wrote a decent chunk of the New Testament. But what might we notice in today's story alone? One way to understand the fruit of regained sight, of restored vision, of a transformed and transforming life is through a series of from-to movements. This is a schematic we've looked at before, but we're going to look at it again, but with some different descriptors, simply want to list these and invite us to reflect on how they were true for Saul and how they might be components of our own ongoing conversion of this season. One movement we see, of course, is from blindness to sight. Another one from death to life. From persecution and prejudice to advocacy. Advocacy. From a motivation toward power and status to joyfully receiving an identity. From pain avoidance to a willingness to suffer. And from striving to make a name for ourselves to orienting our lives around another name. So as we look at these, how might Jesus be? calling you and I and us as a church into these kinds of movements? How might we lean into a renewed participation in our ongoing conversion, in learning to see again? Before we come to the table together, I want to close by offering a prayer. This won't be on screen. I just want to invite us to listen. If closing your eyes helps, that's great. But I will include it in the slides online. Okay, so it'll be there in print form, uh, if you want to check that out later. It's a prayer by Ted Lauder called, Let Something Essential Happen to Me. Oh, God, let something essential happen to me, something more than interesting or entertaining or thoughtful. Oh, God, let something essential happen to me, something awesome, something real. Speak to my condition, Lord, and change me somewhere inside where it matters. A change that will burn and tremble and heal and explode me into tears or laughter or love that throbs or screams or keeps a terrible cleansing silence and dares the dangerous deeds. Let something happen in me which is my real self, God. Oh, God, let something essential and joyful happen in me now. Something like the blooming of hope and faith, like a grateful heart, like a surge of awareness of how precious each moment is, that now, not next time, now is the occasion to take off my shoes, to see every bush afire, to leap and whirl with neighbor, to gulp the air as sweet wine until I've drunk enough to dare to speak the tender word. Thank you, I love you, you're beautiful. Let's live forever, beginning now. And I'm a fool for Christ's sake. A brief moment to be still and allow some of those words to find a place in our soul and then i will lead us in the table liturgy and we'll come to the lord's table together